0: Nature has a plan. A sequence that's been flawlessly designed like a complex machine. From the most massive celestial bodies and all the way down to the tiniest molecules, everything moves in a predictable and seemingly pre-programmed manner, including people. In the modern world, it's easy to forget that we're still simple creatures with fancy toys. Unlike technology, we're still a slave to our animal-like biology in many ways. Sometimes society has a plan, sometimes we have a plan, but we're part of nature and its plan. In an attempt to combat the friction from some of our more basic instincts, we created these rules. Social gravity has led us all to the house of monogamy, and it's really the only home we've ever known. It's a country home. It's way, way out there. There's neighbors somewhere, but we never see them. And rumors are they're into some pretty weird stuff out in those parts. Like, butt stuff. That's my attempt at using a metaphor to describe the constraints and repressions surrounding our sexual behavior, particularly. Did you know that there was a public stoning that took place so recently that it was posted to YouTube in 2015? What compulsion is so strong that the threat of being murdered by rocks won't stop it? What makes a desire so strong? Think about that. Two thousand year old tradition, or more—I I didn't look this up. Probably it's a quick Google, but you get where I'm going with this. Is just, just dangerous to live in the whole life? Maybe. Is this nature's design, or is it man's design, and why? I really want to know. That's the topic of today's episode, and so much more on Hip Hop Anonymous. Welcome to Hip Hop Anonymous, an ode to Alternative Thought, the show about questioning and challenging our mainstream beliefs and allowing ourselves to stretch and suspend our logic in new ways. Stick around after the conclusion of this episode for a special Audio Outerlude. I'm your host, Dean Martian, and I enjoy the feeling I get when I learn new shit like apparently uh Black Americans aren't actually largely the descendants of slaves from Africa, but we're indigenous people here. Check out the book, They Came Before Columbus by Yvonne Van Sertimer, or Ivan Van Sertima. Look it up. You'll find it. Great book. Anyways, today, I want to talk about a polarizing and sexy topic. Is monogamy something that humans do naturally, or are we naughty by nature? I read this book a couple of years ago called Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha. It's about sex, love, attraction, and monogamy versus polyamory. And it brought a whole new perspective to how I viewed sex and relationships. I'm just going to get into it. Let's do this damn thing. How do we even get to monogamy in the first place? Like, I think it's important to kind of talk about marriage first. Like what's the history of monogamous marriage? According to the internet, the first recorded instance of a monogamous marriage was between a man and a woman. And it occurred in 2350 BC in Mesopotamia. The next several hundred years after that, we would see the practice spread to other cultures such as the Greeks, Romans and ancient Hebrews. Initially, this agreement was binding to a, uh, a woman to a man so she could become his property, in a sense, and bear him successors to his wealth, land, name, etc. And this was the sole purpose of marriage, really. But at this particular time, monogamy wasn't really that like, standard either. Ancient Hebrew men were allowed to marry several women. Married Greek and Romans were free to satisfy their sexual urges with concubines, prostitutes, and very often boy lovers, and you know shout out to Catholic priests am I right keeping that tradition alive meanwhile their wives were made to stay at home and take care of the responsibility so that's nice that's great you're out okay <laughs> you're, you're out you're out banging one direction Your wife's at home hand washing tunics and shit anyway so it wasn't until sometime leading up to the 8th entry entry. Century, uh, I guess entry or two, right? We're talking about Bonin, get it? Uh, So anyway, 8th century, leading up into the 8th century, this is where we start to see religion start to become involved with marriage. Up until this point, believe it or not, no religion. Uh, So in Rome, the blessings of a priest became necessary to make a marriage legal, like make it legally recognized. At the Council of Trent in 1563, marriage was officially considered canon law or, or biblical law. And at this time, we see there was an increased pressure on men now to be monogamous. Men were suddenly expected to show some respect for their wives. Some respect. I didn't say respect. Show respect. Because, you know, we all know how that still played out. So men were expected to show a little bit of respect towards women. And it was forbidden from you couldn't divorce your wife like that was forbidden christian law declared that quote the twain shall be of one flesh end quote which the bible has some great stories and quotes and whatnot this is not one of them they have some really awful ones too this is one of the bad ones but this you know this this is the whole time period when you know man and wife had exclusive rights to one another officially when they got married and and just the two of them it's like nobody else so and it sounds like really possessive doesn't it like imagine if you had that kind of relationship with your friend like hey man been friends for a long time now would you say that we're best friends like like oh yeah man we've been cool forever bro good 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 i was hoping you'd say that I suppose this means you have no need to be friends with Tony anymore. I mean, you got all the friend you need right here, buddy. Like, ew, gross. (laughs) Why is it like that with monogamous relationships? I don't know. So um, anyway, oddly enough, marrying for love didn't even come into the picture until the middle ages. And it was all about offspring and familial alliances up until just recently, really. So we're talking the Middle Ages, and one of the most famous love stories that even comes out of the Middle Ages, which is very appropriate for them being like the era that love started being the thing, was Romeo and Juliet. Possibly one of the greatest shitty love stories ever written. Shakespeare was scribing them bars, bro. He was making people aspire to toxic, impulsive, teenage hormone-fueled decision-making well into adulthood. To this day, nigga. I'm hype. I watched some Chappelle show earlier. I'm just like, I got like a weird vibe. I'm just going to roll with it, though. So anyway, the story is about these two 13-year-olds. And they never disclose Romeo's actual age in the story. They, like, they're like, they like, oh, Juliet's a girl of 13. And, and they're like, and Romeo's a little bit older. <laughs> it's like, what? What? He's, he's around that age and it's like what? Scholars try to doctor it up and say that he's you know, it's safe to assume that he's also 13. That's what I read when I looked this up but he's probably well into his, his 20s. You know, he's probably a 20 or a whole 20 year old nigga at, at the time of the story um, at least based on the culture at the time it was, it was very common, not weird to think that at all about that particular time so anyways, they fall in love at first sight at some party or something and then they don't know it or maybe they do know it I think they might know but their families are beefing on a generational level and it's and they cause death in their family trying to be together and 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 fights and shit like that duels and and then they kill themselves at the end spoiler alert if you didn't know but it's only been around since the 13th fucking century so I don't really feel bad Um, let's see Shakespeare also wrote Antony and Cleopatra Antony I, I want to say Anthony really bad But anyway There's so many stories During this period It's not just these two But they're all Like All based on Chivalrous romance It was like A popular genre At that time And dudes Were so ready To catch a body Like on sight Because some other dude Told his girl Like bless you When she sneezed And shit like, how dare they take thine concubine and in tandem insult thy family name and, you know, that kind of shit. And um, there was, and like, first of all, this is also fascinating. I gotta go off on this tangent really quick. Dueling was, like, a real thing. Like, first of all, a, a duel is a fight between two people who have, you know, similarly deadly weapons and they've agreed to set rules before a fight takes place. And the fight is usually about a matter of honor, such as if you insult someone's girl or something or their family name. And the goal of the duel is not usually to kill an opponent, but to restore the honor of the man who declared the duel. According to a Google search, it was created in an effort to actually stop violence and reduce crimes of passion or vengeance. Like, so essentially it was like the purge, but, like, on a micro level, instead of, like, one night everybody's just trying to kill each other, you could just declare, like, you know what? I got beef with you like that. Like, I challenge you to a duel. And that's when you'd, pap, pap hit him in the face with a glove or some shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you'd turn away to go, like, get ready for the duel. Your powdered wig would fucking flail in the, in the wind and shit. It's so lame. Um, when someone talks about the word marriage today... We think about two people who are in love and who want to spend the rest of their lives with each other. Marriage is a serious commitment, and one that isn't really taken lightly for most people. One wouldn't just marry a stranger they just met, for instance. But in medieval times, however, marriage was really different. Women didn't have a choice of who they were going to marry. Most of the time, they didn't even know the man they were going to marry. And that is kind of like, I guess, as much as we should probably continue discussing. Who's we? I don't even know who I'm talking to. Let's just move on to like what marriage is like today. So we're fast forwarding to 2021, the roaring 2020s and world population sitting around 7.9 billion people. We live longer, we're literate. We have free will to some extent. Put an asterisk next to that We've changed a lot But how much has marriage changed Since the middle ages And that's kind of a loaded question Or a trick question Because it's it's actually changed a lot It's it's changed a whole lot Things are fucking totally different now But it's not changed in concept or theory There's a lot of leftovers And we'll kind of get into this a, a little bit So uh Esposa is the word for wife and handcuffs in Spanish. Why is conventional marriage so much work? How come every time we turn around, there's some televangelist that gets busted smoking crack and blowing his male masseuse or something like that. Humans joke about hating monogamous marriage all the time. But are they really joking though? Is it like I know married couples that are older, you know, people in my family even uh, on my dad's side. And they like hate each other, like to some degree, like you could tell they're like very irritated. Anybody I know that's been married longer than like 16 years, and I, and it's not very many people, especially if they're older together, they usually don't even want to be around one another. But yeah, it's still a very revered culture, but it, you could tell that people, it's weird for people to stay together for a long time, which is why we celebrate it so much. We only get pumped. It's like, oh, happy 20 years. Oh my God, you guys have been married for 20 years. If that was something that happened frequently, would we even really be that psyched about it? We just kind of go with the flow. We just kind of do things because we're pre-programmed to follow certain roads and, and routes. And here's actually, for instance, here's the standard narrative for human sexual evolution. So one, boy meets girl. Two, boy and girl assess one another's mate value from perspectives based on their differing reproductive agendas slash capacities. The guy looks for signs of youth, fertility, health, absence of previous sexual experience and likelihood of future sexual fidelity, and his assessment is skewed toward finding a fertile, young, healthy mate with childbearing years, many childbearing years ahead, and no current children to drain his resources. I just... Think of Tony Montana. No guess, No fucking kiss, mate. Tony Montana. I would put a clip of that in here, but I don't, I don't, you know, it's a lot. So the woman, she's looking for signs of wealth or at least prospects of future wealth, social status, physical health, and the likelihood that he's going to stick around to protect and provide for her and the children. So number three boy gets girl, assuming that they meet on one another's criteria and they mate forming a long-term pair bond. Once the bond is formed, she'll be sensitive to indications that he's leaving, vigilant towards signs of infidelity involving intimacy with other women that would threaten her access to his resources and protection. And this is all while keeping an eye out around ovulating, especially for a quick fling with a man genetically superior to her husband. He is going to be sensitive to signs of her sexual infidelities, which would reduce his all important paternity certainty, and while taking advantage of short term sexual opportunities with others, as his sperm are easily produced and plentiful. Researchers confirm these basic patterns around the world and studies conducted over decades. Contrary to everything I just said, divorce in America is well, at least divorce rates in America have been falling over over the past few years. We actually just hit a record low in 2019. According to the Institute for Family Studies website, for every 1,000 marriages in the last year, only 14.9 ended in divorce. I don't know how you have a 0.9 of a marriage. Like, I don't understand how these numbers work. I never do. But anyway, like, you'll see, like, oh, 25 and a half people. Like, who the fuck is half people? Who's dwarves. That's I'm not even joking, but I mean, I'm joking. I know they don't mean anyway. So according to the newly released American community survey data from the census bureau, um, that these numbers are true. And this is the lowest rate we've seen in the last 50 years. This is even slightly lower than in 1970 when 15 marriages ended in a divorce, a whole 0.1%, you know, or whatever more A whole 0.1 more, and that was, point, that was 15 per 1,000 marriages in 1970. And a lower divorce rate means longer marriages, I guess is how that translates. And according to the new census data, the median duration of current marriages in the U.S. has increased almost one year in the recent decade from 19 years in 2010 to 19.8 years in 2019. It's not what I expected. Marriage is actually doing better than 50 years ago. Or is it? Let's shift focus away from divorce rates and look at the marriage rates in the US. That the US marriage rate just hit an all time low in 2019. For every 1000 unmarried adults in 2019, only 33 got married. This number was 35 a decade ago in 2010 and in 1986 and in 1970. So. So many marriages aren't really even given the opportunity to fail because more singles have flat out decided to not get married um and you should see japan like it's a real problem over there apparently like they do not want to have sex with you with each other at all i don't know if it's because there's no diversity like ah, you look like everybody like i need something new but they're just more career oriented it's a it's a real issue i think the government's like paying people to to hook up over there it's wild so anyway now, there's definitely some benefits to getting you know married. There's some legal aspects, the a little bit of tax stuff that makes it worthwhile, inheritance, and you know, but I, I read somewhere that it's supposed to make you more compassionate or open-minded. and I don't disagree with that, but do you really have to be married to do that? Couldn't you just be in any long-term monogamous relationship or a deep relationship with yourself? If there's so many benefits from marriage, why don't people want to get married as much as today? And if they do get married, why do they divorce? According to marriage.com, there's a list of top 10 reasons why people get divorced. And number one on that list is infidelity, cheating, in other words. And I would go over the other nine items, but the cheating one kind of opens the whole can of worms for the topic on this episode. Again, look at the benefits of marriage. Why do people still stray in relationships then? Why do people ever get divorced? Why do people not want to get married? And this kind of goes back to the opening of the show. Is marriage nature's design or man's design? I'm a bit biased because it's obvious to me that marriage was a design of man. Even before religion got involved, marriage was never about being monogamous. You know, people are still getting freaky. So much so that they had to make it part of church doctrine, you know? But even so, it still didn't stop humans from being so damn promiscuous. Marriage clearly isn't enough. What's the driving force behind us to get this urge to get busy in the first place? And of course, offspring is one of them, but what are the mechanics of it? How does, this, how does it work? Why is it so damn strong? And what are the main causes and effects of, of, of sexual attraction in humans? Let's talk about that. Hard facts about physical attraction. Let's see. This is an article from the Huffington Post called The Strange Science Sexual Attraction. First one, smell is a way in which men and women attract one another. Pheromones are known to be involved in sexual attraction in animals, and research suggests that they may also play a role in people. So psychologist Bettina, and I love how it's like, oh, it plays a role in sexual attraction in animals. So maybe it's like, how far removed are we? It's, of course, it plays a fucking role in it. But uh, anyway, psychologist Bettina, pause. And I say that shit like, like I know, like I'm a scientist. I say it all arrogantly. I read two articles in some book that's possibly pseudoscience. So anyway. Psychologist Bettina Paz, who studies pheromones, told Scientific American, We've just started to understand that there's communication below the level of consciousness. My guess is that a lot of our communication is influenced by chemo signals. In a study, female participants were asked to smell men's sweaty undershirts. The researchers found that women could smell how symmetrical a man was, and using that information judged his attractiveness. In both men and women, symmetry is known to be a part of Or an important factor in attractiveness if you didn't know. So that's why like a lot of women are very attracted to like Denzel Washington, supposedly. Because he literally has one of the most symmetrical faces in showbiz. Like Google it. Like they've talked about it on TV and stuff before. But that's weird. Like women can tell how even your or symmetrical your features are by smelling your soiled laundry. That's like alien versus predator shit. Like Anyway, so women quickly assess markers of masculinity, a large body of evolutionary psychology has shown that in general, women tend to prefer more masculine looking men, perhaps because masculine features like broad shoulders or a strong jawline are indicators of virility and good health. But today that doesn't always hold true. Women may have evolved to seek out virility, but that doesn't mean that their preference in a modern context is always for quote unquote manly men. Not at all. Or even the majority of women prefer more masculine men. One study found that the context matters. Women living in poorer environments have a greater preference for masculine men, but women in more developed areas prefer more feminine looking men, according to a study in the FACE Research Laboratory. So basically, poor, disenfranchised women like rec- like roughneck types, and the higher up the social ladder you go, women like softer types. You don't got to be a badass when you have money, you know, I, g- I guess is the story. And extra points if you are, though, which is why Batman is the shit. So, the Wall Street Journal explained, from an evolutionary perspective, masculinity is basically man's way of advertising good genes, dominance, and likelihood to father healthier kids. When disease is a real threat, as it had been, and arguably still is, heritable health is invaluable. So, one time this uh, preference holds true is when a woman is in the most fertile point on her cycle. One study found that women whose partners had less masculine features reported attractive attraction to more masculine-looking men when they were ovulating. However, women whose partners had more masculine features did not report the same eye-wandering. However, these findings only applied to women in short-term relationships, not serious, committed relationships. So you hear that? If you've been in a relationship a long time, she's going to cheat, bro. Just don't even worry about it. (laughs) So uh, that's really wild, you know. It's kind of wild to think about, but it's a true testament to human adaptability. It wasn't that long ago that humans were mostly focused on real survival skills. You needed to know how to hunt and fight and build things. And now these skills are becoming less and less valuable as we progress. Now making money is a survival skill. So a scrawny, rich dude can attract way more women with his lucrative career in trading stocks and driving his Tesla around town more so than some burly dude who works a low paying labor job, for instance, you know? So this isn't really about smell but i found this interesting to the whole like attraction side note thing so is she really attracted to you or is it just her birth control this is an article i read a number of studies have suggested that hormonal contraception may have some effect on women's preferences for sexual partners. A man's smell provides a woman with information about his major histocompatibility complex, or his MHC genes, which play an important role in immune system function. As the thinking goes, women prefer men whose MHC genes differ from their own because children with more varied MHC profiles are more likely to have healthy immune systems, which makes a a whole lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. However... Research has shown that women on the pill actually display a preference for men with more similar MHC genes to their own. Scientists aren't exactly sure why this happens, but one hypothesis is that the hormonal changes involved, like in pregnancy, which is what the pill mimics, might draw women to more, quote, nurturing relatives, end quote, like friends or some shit. I don't know. Even within long-term committed relationships, changes in hormonal contraception use might affect a woman's sexual satisfaction with her male partner. So women who had, you know, met their partner while taking the pill and were still currently taking it as well as those who had never used the pill at any point reported greater sexual satisfaction than those who had begun or stopped using the pill during the course of their relationship and that's according to a lead re- that's according to lead researcher Dr. Craig Roberts so that's weird this is the point where my inner conspiracy theorist comes out and says that the pill is used as a tool by like the reptilians to the weaken the gene pool of the general population God damn you Rockefellers. What the fuck are you sons of bitches up to? Nah, for real though. No, That is crazy though, right? Can you imagine dating a woman for years and you guys have like a really good life and you decide one day that you want a baby, so she gets off the pill. Next thing you know, she starts treating you different. Starts calling you a punk. Yelling at you in public and shit. I don't know if that would happen, but you know. Anyway. So let's talk about the ways in which men are attracted to women. Let's look at this list here. Uh, Let's see. The list just says, dad ass. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Um, We're going to move on to the next section. (laughs) Now I'm just messing. For real though, this is from that same article that I was reading earlier. Men can actually sense fertility on a woman, perhaps due in part to her pheromones. During the most fertile time in her menstrual cycle, you know, her ovulation period, a woman gives off a different scent which may make her more attractive to potential male suitors. Research from the University of Texas at Austin investigated this phenomenon by asking a group of women to wear t-shirts to sleep during both fertile and infertile points in their cycles, and then asked men men to smell the t-shirts and assess which ones they found most appealing. Overwhelmingly, they judged the shirts worn by the fertile women to be more pleasant and sexy. Those are quotes, by the way. Uh, is that someone of insight into why dudes used to do panty raids? Do you guys still do panty raids? I know that's definitely not a thing anymore, but check this out. Like, the first documented incident occurred on February 25th, 1949, at Augustana College, Rock Island, Illinois, and uh, <laughs> Rock Hard Island, Illinois. <laughs> uh, anyway, so around 125 men entered the women's building. The first party entered through heating tunnels beneath the building. Once inside, they unlocked the door for the remaining ra- raiders to enter, locked the house mother in her apartment, and cut the light and phone lines. Although a few women reported missing undergarments, the social goal was to cause commotion. The police arrived during, arrived, and although no pranksters were charged, the news traveled making headlines in the chicago tribune stars and stripes time magazine and the new york times the next incident was on march 21st 1952 when university of michigan students raided a dormitory which sparked panty raids across the nation penn state oh shit, penn state you they oh boy they've been at this shit for a while now huh anyway Penn State's first raid involved 2,000 males marching on the. 2,000? That's fucking scary as shit. Can you imagine being a woman? You're getting like. You're in the bathroom, clean, washing your face, getting ready to go to bed or some shit. You look out the window, there's 2,000 whole niggas just walking up to your fucking dorm room. 2,000 men were marching on the dorms on April 8th. 1952 cheered on cheered on by the women who opened the doors and windows and tossed out lingerie so they was freaks too by the end of 1952 spring term the epidemic had spread to 52 campuses of, of panty raids many don't even know about this i heard about this shit on like happy days or some show that was based in like old ass in the 50s or something so that's some real creepy shit. could you imagine today all them niggas would be getting me too'd. <laughs> can you find out who this male was? He was wearing a brown jacket. He can be seen in the video here, but his face is obstructed by panties that he's stuffed in his mouth. Like <laughs> uh, Anyway, so a woman's face may also appear more attractive to men during the most fertile point in her cycle. A British study conducted in 2004 asked a group of 125 men, the same number of guys who committed the first panty raid ironically that's really weird they had these dudes take a look at two pictures of the same woman and at time at times of uh, high and low fertility in her cycle to assess which photo was more attractive and um, nearly 60 percent of the men rated the photos of the women's faces at peak fertility and which is 8 to 14 days after her last period to be more attractive so that's crazy right the sound of a woman's voice may also play into a man's judgments of a woman's attractiveness. A recent study found that a woman's voice sounds most seductive at her most fertile point in her menstrual cycle and that hearing a woman's peak fertility voice can make a man's skin tingle. I, I, I mean, that doesn't sound very scientific, but whatever. I got to be honest. Hearing all that and understanding how much of our biology is under the impression of things that we can't even see or detect consciously. I'm surprised the institution of marriage has lasted this long. If it weren't for the religious aspect, I think we would have adjusted this institution a long time ago. Literally, it seems to be something that's out of our control for the most part to behave the way way that we behave sometimes. And it goes to show both how little control we have in our sexual nature and at the same time shows the magnitude of our ability to compartmentalize and adapt in order to just not ruffle the fev- feathers, you know what I mean? Interesting. But wait, there's more. Now, earlier I said there was like a top 10 reasons for divorce today, and I told you that the leading one was infidelity. Psychology Today reports that 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce in the US and the other way that they're supposed to end I, I believe is death <laughs> I don't think you're ever supposed to divorce but um, and I can't say for certain what causes these divorces to happen I don't know it's obviously not always infidelity but I think for for the most part you know what I was saying earlier about I'm surprised how if that marriage has even lasted this long like we live in this weird consumer culture and I feel that our culture here in the West, it doesn't really set us up to be emotionally equipped enough to handle long-term commitments. I mean, how, how could it? We're such slaves to overstimulation and instant gratification. We want fast food, fast cars, fast money. We want it, and we want it right the fuck now. Not now, but right now. And that's not in alignment with the patience and willpower it takes to be in a committed long-term relationship. But I will say, much of our failing marriage statistic is also attributed to that sexual repression, man. Ignoring your sexual desires is called sexual repression. It's a state in which a person is prevented from expressing their own sexuality. Sexual repression is often associated with feelings of guilt or shame being associated with sexual impulses. Uh, What constitutes sexual repression is pretty subjective and it can vary greatly between cultures and moral systems. Many religions have been accused of fostering sexual oppression. <gasps> what? Not religions, really? Okay. So some ideologies seek to oppress certain forms of sexual expression, such as homosexuality, and some cultures even use violent practices, such as genital modification and mutilation, honor killings, which sounds like an oxymoron, stoning and this is all an attempt to regulate human sexual behavior all these things i've heard about before but when i really sit back and think about the fact that in the 21st centuries there's humans willing to kill or maim other humans because they cheated on a spouse or just had sexual experiences in general i mean i agree it's shitty to do certain things you know like like lie or cheat and be dishonest but get bludgeoned to death with rock shitty i don't know look it up on youtube if you don't actually don't look it up on youtube i'm pretty sure it's been taken down by now but there definitely was a public stoning due to adultery that took place in 2015 it was put on youtube um don't look for it as horrifying as that sounds still pretty obvious that none of these tactics were really working 100 percent if you think about it you read about people being stoned in the bible I mean, not off some fine smoke or some drugs, you know, but murdered by rocks, just to, just in case some of you are confused, and you realize they, they've been doing this shit since Jesus supposedly was around, and people still cannot stop fucking. Like, that is, <laughs> like, it's never going to stop. Sex is a hell of a drug. I decided to stop here and look at some tactics other than stoning that are used to repress sexuality in humans, and I was surprised and sickened at what I found. Let's talk about this. Female genital genital mutilation, also known as female genital cutting or female circumcision, comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. I'm not even a woman and that makes my body ache. The practice is concentrated in 27 countries in Africa, as well as Iraqi, Kurdistan, Yemen, and Indonesia. And more than 125, it 125 again, 125 million girls and women today are estimated to have been subjected to FGM. FGM does not have any health benefits and has serious negative effects on health, including complications during childbirth. Again, really? Now, that seems like a safe, rational thing to do to somebody. They don't mention any of the psychological effects that it has on a human being, but I guarantee you there are at least a couple. So, uh, FGM is a way of controlling female sexuality. According to the World Health Organization, it states, FGM is often motivated by beliefs about what is considered proper sexual behavior, linking procedures to premarital virginity and marital fidelity. Um, See, there we go again with the... Women are look, Men are looking for young, healthy, fertile um, women that are going to be faithful in marriage and relationships and not be experienced sexually. I mean, there it is right here. FGM is in many communities believed to reduce a woman's libido and therefore believed to help her resist illicit, quote unquote, sexual acts. Complete insanity. And not even men are safe from this. Male circumcision has been practiced as a surgical means of repressing sexuality in some cultures, although it may be practiced for various reasons with the World Health Organization recommending it as a means of reducing HIV and AIDS. Circumcision is also a religious tradition in Judaism and Islam, and don't forget Christianity because they definitely cut my dick. I can't believe that shit. According to medieval Jewish theologian Moses Maimonides menid monitas. I don't. I don't know if I'm saying it with an unnecessary Latin twist, but anyway. So the reason, quote unquote, big air quotes for male circumcision is, quote the wish to bring about a decrease in sexual intercourse and weakening of the organ in question, so that this activity be diminished and the organ be in as a quiet a state as possible. End quote. What the fuck? weaken the organ that's what this old jewish theologian says but if he thinks the organ is weakened why does the world health organization or you know whoever is cutting dicks think that it helps reduce the risk of hiv how are you reducing the risk of hiv if the organ is weak this that illuminati illuminati shit dog i'm fucking i'm telling you they're trying to cut our dicks and make us more susceptible to diseases that they created in order to help diminish and fucking eventually eradicate surplus population with HIV, no, I, I don't think that—not a hundred percent anyway. But my mind does go there. I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart. I—I I was a flat earther. I was even a flat earther for a minute, but I finally, you know, wrapped my head around it. Yes. <laughs> Get it? Globe. <laughs> Anyways, uh, for real though, circumcision. Weirdest shit ever, gets even weirder for us dudes though. Listen to this. In the late nineteenth century, circumcision of the penis was prescribed by John Harvey Kellogg. It might sound familiar, and he considered this to be a cure for masturbation. And that and that name, you, if you're thinking of the person, you're right. It's the person you're thinking of. Like Kellogg, Kellogg's. He, he it's cornflakes. Not only did he make one of the most recognized, beloved brands of cereal, he was also a sick, sadistic bastard who specialized in mutilating little boys' genitals. All this shit I'm about to tell you is 100% true. This is from psychologytoday.com. Though widely considered to be one of the leading sexual educators in his day, which was like the 1800s, mid-1800s, Kellogg proudly claimed never to have had intercourse with his wife in over four decades of marriage. So already, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? That is not something to be proud of. In 40 years, you didn't have sex with your wife? Lightweight serial killer vibe. That's all I got to say. And as a medical doctor, Kellogg claimed the moral authority to instruct parents on proper sexual education of their children. So that doesn't sound too bad, right? Give the kids a 411. What are you going to teach them, Kells? Let's see. He says, if you're unfamiliar with the writings... Well, he doesn't say this, but people say this about him. If you're unfamiliar with the writings of John Harvey Kellogg and others like him, there's more. That must have been like a hot thing back at the time. I've never even seen my penis. <laughs> anyway, their gloating disdain for basic human eroticism is... Chilling. And unmistakable so already this sounds like it's gonna be chill right in this in his best-selling plain facts for old and young written on his sexless honeymoon in 1888 so i guess it was the late 1800s my bad kellogg offered parents guidance for dealing with their son's natural erotic self-exploration and a section entitled quote treatment for self-abuse and its effects. End quote. So basically, if your son is touching his own, you know, cash and prizes, it's self abuse and here's what to do. I'm a doctor, goddammit. That's him talking. I find it odd that on your honeymoon night you refuse to have sex with your wife. And instead of doing that, you're thinking about ways to torture little boys' dicks so that they won't touch themselves. No, no, no. You know what? That's totally normal. In Jerry Sandusky's house <laughs> no. anyway a remedy which almost always is successful in small boys is circumcision. The operation should be performed by a surgeon without without administering an anesthetic as the pain the brief pain attending the operation will have a salutary effect upon the mind, especially if it be connected with the idea of punishment. This dude. He ate dried foreskins he collected probably for breakfast. He just put them in a fucking bowl with milk and shit. He wasn't the only one. William Acton, a leading authority on sexuality in mid-Victorian Britain. Oh, that sounds fucking open-minded. He advocated male circumcision in order to prevent, quote, undue excitement of the sexual desires which it is our object to repress, end quote. God damn! So, a biocultural analysis of male circumcision supports the hypothesis that a practical consequence of circumcision, complementary to any religious symbol, a religious symbolic function, is to make a circumcised male less sexually excitable and distractible, and hence more amenable to his group's authority figures. End quote. These motherfuckers, man. See, it always comes back down to control. I'm thinking my whole life circumcision is so that my dick is healthy and whatnot, and all along, they're trying to control my boners, so I listen to my teachers in school. Anyway, really quick, eight signs that you may be yeah, sexually oppressed. Let's see. One, chronic tension. Two, nervousness and irritability. Three, insomnia. Four, aggression five, erotic dreams, six, lack of assertiveness, seven, taking the blame or over apologizing, eight, and the last one, excessive interests in sex. And also some other effects of sexual oppression include some people won't even socialize with the opposite sex and develop resentment for persons of the opposite sex. Personal grooming can be neglected. The repressed will wear unattractive clothes, hoping to draw attention away from themselves. Relationships are hurt as well. When a person is repressed sexually, it tends to cause strains on communication for couples. And uh, we can see that sexual repression has worked in lots of ways. I mean, studies have shown that women become aroused just as quickly as men, but often feel shame around communicating those desires verbally is for lineage sakes and the primitive male mind, it's like, how could you be sure if she was faithful if, she, if you thought she really enjoyed sex? So women as a survival tactic had to pretend that she didn't really like sex that much, you know? And I remember my first serious girlfriend, you know, when I think about this, and she didn't want to have doggy style sex because it made her feel like a slut is what she said. And I was just like thinking to myself, well, you're not slutty? Like, oh no. I was was really hoping you'd try these handcuffs on. I wasn't into handcuffs then. I'm not now either. I just said that because I thought it was funny. But seriously, that's something women must have to deal with on a regular. Because some tiny Dick Roman dudes were afraid of some other man who was going to do a better job. So, real beta move. Nice shit, dude. Moving on. Chimps and bonobos. What the fuck does this have to do with anything? Random, weird segue, but here's a quote about homo sapiens from the book Sex at Dawn. Homo sapiens, that's us, evolved to be shamelessly, undeniably, inescapably sexual. True, some of us manage to rise above this aspect of our nature, but these preconscious impulses remain our biological baseline, our reference point, the zero in our own personal number system. Our evolved tendencies are considered normal by the body each of us occupies. Willpower, fortified with plenty of guilt, fear, shame, and mutilation of body and soul may provide some control over these urges and impulses. So basically what this is saying is that humans born and untappered by societal guidelines are most likely going to be hypersexual creatures. And if it weren't for all the influence for us to not have sex by You know, society, at least not so often anyway, we would follow these urges shamelessly, most likely, except for, you know, AIDS and diseases. Probably still wouldn't be a great idea to do that. But we live in a very repressive world now. Part of it's due to the AIDS and stuff I just talked about. It's a a world full of do's and don'ts for the most part, though. And polyamorous marriage is illegal in the U.S. And people claim it's unnatural. And on top of that, people get jealous and hurt, which is just symptoms of insecurity and trauma from the way that we've been doing things for so long because we view our girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, and wives as, and we've grown accustomed to objectifying them, tying our emotional stability to whether or not that person wants to fuck you today. I know that monogamous behavior was likely created to put order in a place to help save society. I know that monogamy was, you know, probably put in place in order to Safe society, at least that was maybe the idea initially. But aside from venereal diseases and infections and jealousy, could it possibly heal the world to practice free love? Let's check in on our closest primate relatives, bonobos. So often we learn that our closest primate ancestors are chimpanzees, but that's not true. Chimpanzees are assholes and are basically the opposite of peaceful bonobos, they're jealous possessive, vindictive, and murderous. If you don't believe me, look it up. There's like, like humans have chimps as pets sometimes. And when chimps reach the age of seven, they forget all their domestication and just revert back to being these evil fucking monsters. And there's a story of this guy who bought a birthday cake to the zoo for his chimp because he had to give his chimp up because it became seven years old. So they're like, you should probably take this fucking little bastard to the zoo so he doesn't kill you and um so the guy realizes this the chimp's birthday so he takes him a birthday cake and he takes this cake and gives it to his little buddy and all the other chimps they see that he's bringing them his that, that monkey a treat and doesn't want to give them one and they get really jealous and they attack the guy for not bringing them cake and they're and they're smart when they attack Like they attack things that would be missed. They attacked important parts of the body and they and they're smart enough to know. Like, for instance, they snatched this dude's balls off first, so he couldn't procreate. Then they bite off his fingers, so he can't like do shit. And they ripped his fucking face off. And this isn't an isolated incident, by the way. This happened a lot of times, okay? Just just trust me. Chimps are dicks. And they're nothing like our actual closest ancestors. Let's hear a little bit about them. Female bonobos who share otherwise unique traits with humans and no other species. DeWall's research has demonstrated, for example, that the increased sexual receptivity of the female bonobo dramatically reduces male conflict when compared with other primates whose females are significantly less sexually available. The abundance of sexual opportunity makes it less worthwhile for males to risk injuring each other by fighting over any particular sexual opportunity. Look at that. In simplified terms, if women are having sex with men regularly and for the most part indiscriminately, men are happy and less violent. So here's a little kind of diagram. I mean, I could see a diagram, you can't. But it explains the social effects of sexual egalitarianism in bonobos and presumably humans too. And keep in mind, this is in alignment with matriarchal society instead of patriarchal society, which is what we have and what's kind of fucking us up. But in matriarchal society and bonobos, we see an increased female receptivity, which leads to less male frustration and competition. That leads to reduced male alliances, meaning that we don't form gangs out of sexually repressed rage or whatever. And then reduced alliances between males leads to obscured paternity. So I'm guessing that means guys at this point are kind of sharing the same partners and, you know, getting along. And that means that they're not being possessive over women and they're not, you know, they don't know whose kid belongs to who at this point and Nobody cares. This leads to increased female bonding, which makes uh, female alliances the more dominant ones. And this finally leads to less infanticide or child murder, which I'd say is a good thing, and more generalized paternal care. But this behavior actually also exists in human tribes today. Check this shit out. Donald Pollock tells us that the Kalina believed that the fetus to have originally been formed of accumulated semen. Obviously, that's not true, but I only wrote it down because it, I feel like it illustrates the behavior and perspective of their society and their lack of ego and possessiveness. They attribute the baby's growth after birth to women's milk, which is much more accurate than their beliefs on making a baby. But nonetheless... Any number of women might nurse the child, he writes. It's common for a group of sisters to share nursing functions. And this is another example. Recalling the childhood among the Dagara, author, psych- author and psychologist Maladoma Patrice Somme, remembers how freely children wandered into the houses throughout the village. He says, This gives the child a very broad sense of belonging. Everybody chips in to help raise the child. This literally is unheard of today. And as I may have mentioned a little bit earlier, so many people are quick to say things like, oh, it takes a village. But many people don't really understand what that means compared to these tribes. Here's some more. Um, it's very rare that a child feels isolated or develops psychological problems because everyone is very aware of where he or she belongs. And perhaps this is why there's so many you know, fucked up people in the world today. When I was in high school, there were kids who had pretty shitty lives already, you know, and some of them were already on meds and had been institutionalized. And again, not the products of society that's following its natural human impulses, you know, and it's not just about sex either. It's about love, period. We should be sharing more and we don't need private property and all this other stuff. But it sounds like some shit a hippie cult leader would say that just wants to get laid. But I genuinely believe that's true. The society we live in today, it's, it's cold and disconnected. It promotes separation and disunity in many ways. And this is unmistakably male behavior and energy out of control. As a man, I sometimes feel like it would be better if women were in charge of a lot more things. I mean, maybe at least I wish there was more feminine energy to balance things out in the world. Also, I found this interesting uh, in an article at Timeline called Blame Agriculture for Your Basic Sex Life, which was based off of the book Sex at Dawn. Polyamory was the pleasant norm before humans learned to farm. Monogamy likely wasn't commonplace until the invention of private property. Before, about 8,000 BCE, gathering food and resources was constant, and there was rarely extra time or food. So for the individual... uh, for For the survival of all and the need to procreate, our prehistoric ancestors lived in nomadic clans sharing everything from meals to childcare, sexual partners, and these tribes had little hierarchical structure, everyone played a crucial role in community survival, and everyone contributed to a shared group identity. However, between 12,000 and 4,000 BCE, in a period known as the Neolithic Revolution, Humans learned to cultivate most of agriculture's fundamental crops in the world's major regions. Therefore, women's roles as community leaders shrunk, they were absorbed into male dominated society called patriarchy, and women's bodies and their babies became mere items in the agricultural economy. Therefore, or not therefore, from there, <laughs> Fierce competition for wealth divided communities into smaller units and eventually into nuclear families and monogamy ruled and still does to this day. So Basically, when the idea of private property came about, people having sex with whomever they wanted was a no-no. Ownership of land and inheritance in general, like that was just a big deal. And therefore, if your wife was fucking Jim Bob down the street, when you die, all your shit might unknowingly go to somebody else's kid. and, And they would use that inherited wealth to support... You know, their genetics or whatever, you know. And uh, that's how the idea of marriage kind of became perpetuated. Greed, essentially. Selfishness. And um, you may still be asking, how do we know what type of sex was going on so long ago? Well, the answer is our bodies. When I was in design school, I learned an important principle that applies not only to art, but to nature. And that is structure equals function meaning a duck has webbed feet because he's supposed to swim through water and birds have feathers and lightweight bones because they need to fly. And mammals have lungs instead of gills because they breathe air. The way you're built hints at your purpose and the conditions that you evolved in. Humans have sex organs, sex drive, and are rewarded with pleasure when we put things into action. And I'm sure Usher agrees that's just what it's made for. So anyway, according to Gallup, Penises were sculpted in a way that the organ would effectively displace the semen of competitors from their partner's vagina, a well-synchronized effect facilitated by the upsuck of thrusting during intercourse. So basically penises are like little tiny plungers, you know, and perfectly designed with the idea that there's going to be existing sperm inside of a woman's vagina already. And the penis evolved at a time when fierce mating competition was happening, and men even have destroyer sperm, which seek out and eliminate other males' genetic material. That's, that's a fact. And in the case of women, women are able to have multiple orgasms, while men are often shamed for finishing within seconds or before the fun even starts. According to Sex at Dawn, it pointed out that women were very commonly having sex with multiple partners at once. A long time ago, some tribes believed that it took multiple men to make a baby. So the village would essentially just line up for one woman. And they would, you know, all climax in seconds likely and then take turns or whatever. And meanwhile, the women hadn't even gotten started yet. And remember how we talked about women's voices having the ability to make men's skin tingle? So that's such a scientific fact. (laughs) Um, That's not the only thing that it does studies actually do show that men get turned on when they hear women having sex like when they're moaning and stuff like that the sound of a woman's moans during like sex is actually somewhat of a mating call women's ability to achieve multiple orgasms is almost a reward system crafted by nature to ensure the species would survive by allowing to have sex for extended periods of time with multiple partners thus increasing the chance of pregnancy. I'm not educated enough to dispute or endorse these ideas, but I do feel some of the concepts expressed in the book Sex at Dawn help to explain a lot of behavior that we see in our culture. When you start to recognize the ways in which we are sexually repressed because of patriarchal you know, lifestyle and whatnot, you see that men and women are just turned upside down. We're a far cry of what we used to be. We used to truly rely on one another in order to survive, but now we just tolerate with each other like fucking dogs and property. Our relationships have become based on quid pro quo. What can you do for me? You know, quid pro quo. That's hard to say. Uh, It's also based on insecurities and emotional dependency and jealousy and You know, I hear a lot about Me Too and women's rights movements and things like this. And ironically, I genuinely believe that if women want to be free, they have to let go of monogamous relationships. And I think that would be harder for women than it is for men, because I think they're mostly affected by it. The institution was made to, in a weird way, kind of protect women in the first place. So I think it's deeply ingrained in the people that it affects the most um, though it does affect us together. I don't know. I don't know how much I believe this stuff, but it, like I said, it's interesting. What do you think about it? Let me know what you think. I want to know. Hit me up via com. That's my website. You can go to the contact page and fill out the form. But, uh, yeah. Anyways, later. What's up? Been a minute since we last talked Lot of you all, I ain't want nothing No it's late, but you growing up Through my mind how you used to walk Highly unusual, I get too involved So damn beautiful Why your voice gotta sound so musical, huh? I'm tickled when you laugh Say right I'll come quick fast Mash the pedal down to the metal glide Maybe the devil driving, her. I got whiplash Hurts the shape you take when you lay here Touching you like button combinations Tried to quit your game is hella fatal Take a couple hits and quickly fade oh, you're the one I want You're the one I need I'm begging you please Can you come back to me Cause I was blind you were right in, front, right in front of me. You were right in front of me, girl. I was blonde. you back up and busy seeing your messages you should a pack of peppers girls caliente and bragging to my friends hang your back like man it's kind of okay got a girl that let her world she don't just hit me up when she bored probably hoping i don't go on tour how's you have you talk from the floor put the dough up stop and think about it need to grow up ain't like a personality still smash patriarchy made women in form of social cash learn from my friends how to be a man none of us niggas even had a dad Women ain't perfect, that's a fact, but sometimes I feel like I want to cry and I can. She helped me be free like that, redefining me, now I can finally be a man.